Hello, this is John Mangini, Vice President of Marketing with the New Jersey Bankers Association. Welcome to the New Jersey Banker Podcast. Today, our President and CEO, Micah Fuso, sits down with Jay Johnson, former Secretary of Homeland Security and current partner at Paul, Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton and Garrison to discuss cybersecurity, the potential impacts of the new Congress, internal and external threats to our democracy, and more. Thanks, John, and thank you, Mr. Secretary, for joining us today. Before we get into the discussion, I want to take a moment to first remind everyone that you will be presenting the keynote address at our Economic Leadership Forum on January 20th, and you can get more information at njbankers.com. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Secretary Jay Johnson. Secretary Johnson is currently a partner at the law firm of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. He served as Secretary of Homeland Security from 2013 to 2017, served as General Counsel to the Department of Defense from 2009 to 2012, and served also as General Counsel to the Department of the Air Force, as well as Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us. Mike, it's my pleasure, and I look forward to our discussion. It's a pleasure to speak to this group as a resident and taxpayer of the state of New Jersey. Thank you for coming. So why don't you tell us first what your finest memory and greatest accomplishment was as Secretary of Homeland Security? Well, if, if I may, I'd like to broaden the question a little bit to encompass my time at the Department of Defense. As you noted, I was the general counsel of the Department of Defense. I had that job for four years, appointed by President Obama in 2009, which meant I was a senior legal official for the entire Department of Defense, which is our largest department of the US government. My proudest accomplishments in public service were while I was at DOD. One, was co-authoring the report that uh, led the way to Congress repealing the so-called don't ask, don't tell law in 2010, which permitted US service members who were gay or lesbian to serve without fear of separation if they disclosed to someone their sexual orientation. It was, it was a bad law, it was outdated, and it should be repealed. It, it deserved to be repealed, and we wrote a report that, that assessed the effect on military readiness if that law were repealed. We assessed that the impact on military readiness unit cohesion would be low. Congress received the report and repealed the law several, several weeks later in a lame duck session of Congress in December 2010. 12 years ago. My second finest moment in public service was a moment, May 1st, 2011, the day we got bin Laden in Pakistan. I was the lawyer who thought about whether or not under international law, our special forces could go into Pakistan without Pakistan's knowledge and consent to get bin Laden. It was a very secret operation, very close hold, very, very few people in Washington knew about it. There were exactly four lawyers in the entire U.S. government acting as lawyers uh, involved in the planning of that operation. I was one of them. Uh, 
And uh, I'll never forget the moment when I heard that our team had, had got bin Laden as a New Yorker present in Manhattan on 9-11, which happens to be my birthday. That was certainly one of my proudest moments in, in public life. As Secretary of Homeland Security, Mike, you're very much on defense. You're the defensive team. No one really notices the defensive team unless somebody scores a goal, uh, a touchdown, and everybody says, where's the defense? So as Secretary of Homeland Security, the community in Homeland Security, uh, nobody really notices all the fine work we do unless something bad happens. We like to say, I always say that one one failure is the equivalent of 1,000 successes. Nobody really pays attention to the successes. So overall, in that job, which was a very large job, covering aviation security, cybersecurity, border security, port security, the Secret Service, FEMA, natural disasters, TSA, and a whole bunch of other missions, uh, my proudest moment was simply the honor to serve and to lead the men and women of a department of 230,000 people, and occasionally throwing out a first pitch at a baseball game. <laughs> well, you know, as, as you know, somebody that, that witnessed also 9-11 with their own eyes, I, I can't thank you enough. We, we um, you know, attorneys, attorneys, particularly government attorneys, and I was one of them, um, we, we, get, we get tarred with the brush of, you know, we look for every reason not to do something. And uh, you clearly look for every reason to do something. And, and you served your country very well on, on that important day, May the 1st. The role of the lawyer, especially um, an in-house attorney working for a bank or a government agency, is to not simply say no, but to help the client get the yes in a legally permissible way. So, you know, if you can't, if you can't drive down Route 17 to get to the Lincoln Tunnel, then try the Garden State. So, you know, I'll, I'll find you a lawful path to get where you want to be. I'm not just simply there as a roadblock. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. We, we you know, I, it is something that is, is still raw in the minds of a lot of folks, as you know, and um, that, that's, it's great. It's great. So, so you noted in the past that great threats such as racial injustice, antiquated immigration policies and disinformation are, are major issues um, that face the nation. Do you think this is still accurate? And are there additional threats that you'd like to note? The way I would put it is this. I think day to day, the greatest threat to our public safety, our homeland security right now is gun violence, mass shootings, um, the drug problem, rising levels of suicides, teen addictions of all sorts that ail our society present day. If you would ask me the same question two years ago or even a year ago, I would have clearly added COVID to that list. Longer term, Mike, and it's important that we not lose sight of the longer term, the challenges and threats to our nation to our homeland security that I see are climate change. Climate change is a threat to homeland security 
given the effects of severe weather on things like aging infrastructure. Global warming is a threat to our homeland security long term. And the problem with the challenges in addressing it are there's always something else that demands our attention short term. Global warming, climate change is a long term challenge, along with our national debt, in my view, and Americans losing faith in their government. If you lose faith in our government and its ability to address problems and challenges, we're nowhere. So I, those, are the, those are the challenges and the threats that I see. You know, it's interesting that you raise the issue of, uh, of the national debt, because that issue is certainly prevalent all the time. But, but unfortunately, our thought leaders seem to um, sweep that under the rug. You know, our, our, our friends that are more liberal don't want to address it because they want to fund social programs. And our friends that are conservative don't want to address it because it would uh, have to create a situation where taxes would have to go up. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that um, a thought leader like you is, is looking at that. But you, you address some issues and, and most of them are internal. Um, do you see any external threats uh, looming on the horizon to uh, homeland security? Yes, of course. Global warming is global in scope, obviously. Global warming leads to drought leads to displaced populations, famine, even corruption. That's a global challenge. Cyber attacks are a global challenge. I said a year ago in a speech that in my judgment, cyberspace is the new battle space between and among nation states and that Kinetic warfare is receding. Nation-on-nation -nation kinetic warfare is receding and being replaced by the battle in cyberspace, which occurs very often in covert fashion on a daily basis, even today. Now, I said all that two months before Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, which is a very traditional, though illegal, armed conflict. But, I, my, but my, my longer term assessment still, still holds. I believe that on a global level, cyberspace and attacks in cyberspace are one of our critical challenges. Increasing, in, increasing competition uh, globally is also a challenge. Uh, I am on the board of directors of US Steel U.S. Steel, as I'm sure you know, Mike, used to be the, the Apple or the Google of, of the U.S. Uh, indu industrial economy with increasing competition globally, a lot of it unfair. American iconic companies struggle to remake themselves. I'm very proud of how U.S. Steel has, remade, has, has been remaking itself while I'm serving on their board of directors, if I could give a plug for that company. But you know, global competition uh, is also obviously a challenge. So I want to go back to U.S. Steel um, in a moment. Um, but but on this issue of of, of cybersecurity, cybercrime, how do we move from 
a reactive stance to a more proactive stance, particularly when we look at, at securing financial institutions? That's a good question. There's a critical difference between defensive cyber and offensive cyber. The private sector should not be engaging in offensive self-help. That's the role of government. That's why we have a U.S. Cyber Command. Defensively, there's a lot that the private sector can do. Most of critical infrastructure in this country, and there are 16 sectors of critical infrastructure, including financial services, most of critical infrastructure in this country is in private hands. Therefore, it is up to the private sector to do a lot for its own cybersecurity. Many entities in financial services are remarkably sophisticated. The largest financial institutions are very, very sophisticated when it comes to cybersecurity. Many of the largest defense contractors in our defense industrial base, I also serve as director of Lockheed Martin, are very, very sophisticated when it comes to cybersecurity. Smaller banks, smaller companies, companies in the supply chain, frankly, are, are less sophisticated when it comes to their own cybersecurity and the cybersecurity of those that they deal with. Therein lies the challenge, in my view. We are in a place where we have yet to catch up to the creativeness, the ingenuity of those engaging in offensive cyber activities, cyber attacks, ransomware attacks. Those on defense struggle to keep up. Those on offense are increasingly tenacious, clever, uh, aggressive, and we still struggle to keep up on the defensive side. There are some, as I mentioned a moment ago, very, very sophisticated actors in cyber defense. A whole lot of others are, are not. A basic starting point is do a better job at securing your own system, your own email system. Make Raise the awareness of cybersecurity for everyone who uses your system. Remind people that the most devastating cyber attacks on a bank, for example, occur when an employee of a bank is the target of a spear phishing operation. And they let somebody into the system by downloading an attachment from somebody they don't know. And once you do that, the bad actor is in the system. They've, they've gotten into the gate, into the fortress, and composes virtually anybody. So simply raising the awareness of our employees about the evils of spear phishing, cyber hygiene, I hate that phrase, cyber hygiene, uh, can go a long way in preventing cyber attacks. Now, that's a long answer to your question, but there it is. I appreciate it. Um, I want to, you raised, you raised your, your service to Lockheed as well as to U.S. Steel. And I'd like to go back to that. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe you could kind of sculpt out this question that I'm going to ask you inartfully. We have a situation where Taiwan produces the vast, vast majority of semiconductors that are necessary for both peacetime domestic applications, as well as military applications. And we've, we've identified this threat and hopefully we're, we're, we're getting through it uh, with, with what, we're, uh, what we've proposed and, and President Biden has signed into law. But in your service, and if you think about what U.S. Steel was able to do as far as wartime production in World War II, 
and what, what Lockheed is able to do. In your service, are there any other areas similar to semiconductors that are, uh, or any other uh, components that are produced almost solely overseas that are important to the United States um, in both a, a domestic as well as a military application? Because the, uh, the, the semiconductor question is, is, is very troubling when you, when you do a deep dive in it. Oil. <laughs> How about oil? Yeah. Uh, though less so than we used to be. And, you know, with semiconductors, I'm pleased that our government is focused on the long-term problem and solving the long-term problem of our dependence on those overseas for things as important as semiconductors, encouraging more investment here in this country. It all, it all stems back to education. It, we, we, I think we've taken a huge step forward. Um, when you mentioned dependence, obviously, I, I, think, of, I think of carbon emissions. Um, the percentage of carbon emissions on this planet coming from just the US, Russia, and I think India and China is huge. It's like some overwhelming percentage of world carbon emissions. So we're dependent in that sense on what others do in, in the space. I come back to that yet again. But I, the answer, the, the broader answer to your question is our government either unilaterally and or through coalitions needs to focus on our longer term problems, our longer and, and longer term solutions, not the next election, not the next month, not the next news cycle, which too often gets far too much attention. U.S. Steel, I'm really proud of because we're remaking ourselves. Um, you know, we're, we believe in many mills, which are cleaner, more efficient ways to produce steel. Um, that's, and that's, the, that's the wave of the future. And, and, and the company is, is, is remaking itself into a lean, mean, competitive operation. It's great. It's great. So, so I just want to pivot a little bit more onto, onto some domestic questions. Um, if you could give us your opinion a little bit about divisiveness in the national discourse, you know, is, is the new Congress, is that feeding more divisiveness? Is this issue of election integrity, um, is, that, is that feeding divisiveness? And, uh, you know, any, anything that you could talk a little bit around these two issues, because, um, you know, clearly, clearly there are uh, two different sources of news. Um, it would be interesting to uh, hear the results of a, of a football game on MSNBC or on Fox, because I think you would have two different winners of the game. Um, <laughs> but if you could, if you could just uh, give, give some thought on that. Big question. Let me see if I can answer it in all of its components. First of all, you're talking to somebody who spends a decent amount of time on television, on cable television, giving my insights and analysis I make a point, Mike, of going on both MSNBC and Fox and a lot of networks in between to talk to all audiences. 
it's always an interesting experience to within the span of one week be on MSNBC's Morning Joe and Fox and Friends, which I did earlier this year on the exact same topic. And I said the exact same thing, same technology, same lingo, but worlds apart. The best analogy I can give is a sports analogy, which is you're at the plate. There's a pitcher 60 feet, six inches away from you on a mound. The pitch is coming in at the same velocity, but the spin on the ball is entirely different. And so when you swing and hit it, it's going to go in a completely different direction. Different people are going to hear it and interpret it different ways. But in, in partial answer to your question, I think it's important that those of us with a public voice not just talk to people who already agree with us, but to those who are inclined or disinclined to agree with us, to challenge assumptions and to broaden the mind. And whenever I go on Fox, I'm a Democrat. Whenever I go on Fox, I get the most interesting emails from people. My email is public. Um, some are offensive, but others are highly complimentary. You know, thank you so much for, you know, presenting a point of view that I hadn't heard before. I really appreciate it, which makes it, which makes it worth it. So here's the, here's the basic answer to your question. Yes, we live in an increasingly politically divided country. You can attribute that to many things. You can attribute that to opinionated news. You can attribute that to social media. Um, the good news about social media, I believe social media has a lot to do with rising levels of political participation in this country, voting levels. In the last presidential election in 2020, 66% of registered voters voted, which is the highest in history as far as I've... 1992, we had 101 million people vote for president. In 2020, we had 151 million, 151 million people vote for president. So people are more engaged politically, but they're also more divided politically. And just in the span of my lifetime, and I'm 65 years old, I, I've seen that, I've seen that change. And politicians are are you know, hey, you know, just like bankers are in business to, to make money, politicians are in business to get reelected and respond to the political wins. So if it's in your political interest to take an extreme position, stand back and call the other side evil, then the politician will do so. If the voters change their attitudes about who they elect, and judge success based upon accomplishments. You know, I wish voters would judge who they vote for by productivity. How many bills did you sponsor? How many bills that you sponsored got passed and became law? Uh, by working with the other side, by engaging in that dirty word, political compromise, versus just simply taking an extreme position calling the other side evil and screaming about it. That seems to be how we reward politicians today. In the House of Representatives, there are actually very few genuine swing districts. You know, Josh Gottheimer is in a swing district. Tom Malinowski, who just lost his reelection, is in a swing district here in New Jersey. But there are probably no more than, I don't know, 20, 25 genuine swing districts in this entire country. The rest are safe seats 
and the incumbents worry about primary challenges. If you're a Democrat, you worry about a challenge from the left. If you're a Republican, you worry about a challenge from your right. That incentivizes political behavior where people play to the extremes and not to the center. And when people don't play to the center, we don't get anything done in Washington because politics is compromise. So uh, I could go on and on talking about this. I'm worried that we're increasingly unable to address the problems right in front of our faces because of our politics. We can't even do the basic stuff. As I speak, Congress in Washington is struggling with a spending bill for next year. That's the basic stuff. You know, the basic function of a Congress is to fund the government, to pass an appropriations bill to fund the government. We never do it on time. It's like the 14-year-old who waits until two in the morning to do his homework. And 90% of stuff gets done in the last minute. And it's sloppy. And a lot of mistakes get made that way. I wish the voters, and and a, a lot of this tracks back to basic voter behavior. I wish the voters would have a different set of incentives for the leaders we elect to represent us. The last thing I'll say, Mike, is I I do detect a somewhat different mood among voters. I think the the climate, the, the mood of the electorate today is very different than it was in 2016, for example. My sense is that the voters, and this is not a commentary on any one politician or incumbent, make that clear, I do sense that the voters are in the mood for a new generation of leaders. If you track history like I do, you know that exactly every 16 years, we have a new generation of president. 1960, Kennedy replaced Eisenhower. 1976, Carter replaced Nixon Ford. 1992, Clinton replaced Reagan Bush. 2008, Obama replaced Bush. The next turn will be 2024, two years from now. I I can't say that I agree with you more. I I think the lack of moderation, the lack of focus is, is, I love history and I, I I, I am truly sad for what we see. But um, let's end it on a higher note. I used to, um, you know, in Washington, I discovered it doesn't take a whole lot to win the respect of somebody of the opposing party. And if you just saw a basic courtesy, it goes a long way of taking the sting and the venom out of the working relationship. I I completely agree with you, Mr. Secretary. I, I I hope that some folks heed your words. I really do. So, so in closing, Let's let's uh, let's end on a high note uh, for for folks that know me. This is something that you will never know about me, but I'll tell you today. I though I was born in 1975, I should have been born in 1935. My taste <laughs> in music is uh, decidedly old. And uh, Mr. Secretary, oh, Mike, don't, I know where you're going. Don't put it that way. It's not old. <laughs> it's, you 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 follow the golden era of music. Okay, I, I indeed do. So. Uh, I know that you host a radio show, um, so please feel free to give it a plug. But where did this passion come from, and who was your favorite artist? 
my ear for music was honed in the 1960s, 1970s. I was born in 1957. 1975 was the year I finished high school, Mike. Um, and so my ear for music was formed in the 60s, 70s. I'm a huge classic R&B fan. And I'm a huge fan of WBGO, Public Radio, WBGO, 88.3 on your FM dial. For those who have a radio, a lot of people don't, or online at WBGO.org. I've been a huge supporter of the station for over 20 years now. I co-host to do fundraising drives. I used to be on their board of directors. And about a year ago, the station manager said to me, how would you like to have your own radio show? And I said, I'd love to have my own radio show. That'd be like fantasy camp for me. And so in March, I debuted Saturday mornings, eight to 10. I'm on about once a month now because I do have a full-time job practicing law. But once a month, Saturday mornings, eight to 10, you can hear uh, a show called All Things Soul with Jay Johnson. So I have music, but I have one interview with every show. And my first interview, my debut interview in March was former President Bill Clinton. who talked about his love of the saxophone. It's a great interview. And I've had a whole lot of other interesting people along the way. Uh, my next show will be January 14th, 2023. Putting it together now, I think we're going to have a very, very exciting guest. Sounds great. So who's your favorite? Who do you like the best? Oh, I, I just, I, I, it's like asking what's your favorite bottle of wine? Uh, uh, you know, uh, the Four Tops, The Temptations, Gladys Knight, Smokey, uh, The Dells, The Dramatics, Tavares, Sam Cooke, Donnie Hathaway, Aretha Franklin, um, Patti LaBelle. I, I could just keep going. Um, there's no one favorite. That's my genre of, of music, but it's fairly... Fairly um, diverse. You know, I'm a fan of, I, I play Elvis every once in a while. Um, so I, it's a fairly diverse playlist that I try to bring to the show. And I think people, I'm listening to it. That's great. That's people great. Will, people will, um, like this morning at the train station, New Jersey Transit, people will say, well, thank you very much for your service. And I say, well, thank you. And, and they're referring to my radio show. They're not referring to my time in Washington. Well, I, I thank you for that because I think it's a tragedy that that music is not played on the radio widely. I will certainly uh, tune in on the 14th. Um, that, that's, that's excellent. Um, if, you, if you happen to uh, find some Billy Ward and the Dominoes, I would love to hear it. <laughs> but uh, we certainly uh, also thank you for, uh, for, for taking the time. So uh, please, on behalf of, of New Jersey bankers, uh, please come to our event on January 20th to see Secretary Johnson deliver the keynote address. And thank you so much to my very special guest, Secretary Jay Johnson. This was a pleasure, Mike, and a lot of fun. Thank you so much, sir. For the New Jersey Banker Podcast, I'm Mike Afuso.